This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors in our lives, and when we get sober, they can almost feel magnified at first because we're adjusting to feeling all our feelings again rather than using alcohol to numb them. I was honestly really surprised when I got sober at how many emotions came up for me. I remember literally saying, I have so many feelings right now, and it felt really overwhelming having to feel them all. But the great thing about that is that it gave me the clarity and awareness that I had some things to work through, like people-pleasing and like my own self-talk. That's where therapy can be so helpful because because it's a safe space to get things off your chest and begin to work through what's been weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. What I really love about BetterHelp is that it's entirely online. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire and you'll be matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com happiest today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash happiest. There are so many amazing perks of being sober, and one of my favorites is that sobriety allows us to take self-care to the next level, and it gives us such a sense of confidence. There's really nothing like feeling confident in your own skin. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about today's sponsor, One Skin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. I've told you about how when I got sober, one of my favorite things was starting a skincare routine because that was not something I ever prioritized before, but let's be honest, knowing what the best skincare routine is can be a little overwhelming. That's why I'm excited about OneSkin. There's no complicated routine, no multiple step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code HAPPIEST at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code HAPPIEST. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support my show and tell them I sent you. Hello and welcome to Happiest Sober Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited about this episode today because I am bringing you a guest. Uh, it's a fellow Canadian guest from the other side of Canada. Um, today I am talking with John Lupin, aka the Poetry Bandit. So John has been sober for over seven years and in his seven years of sobriety, he's released three books, three amazing books of poetry. The first one is called My Sober Little Moon and then You Only Love Me When I'm Suffering and Encyclopedia of a Broken Heart. Um, I love his poetry. I actually have here um, one of his poems that he posted on Instagram not too long ago that I love. Um, He says, I prefer the vulnerability hangovers these days. No one gets hurt and there's never a walk of shame. And I think that's so perfect. It makes me laugh because literally every single time I release a podcast, every time I go on a podcast, like I come away with the most intense vulnerability hangover that day without fail. So I think it's really fitting because when you get sober, it just... I think it just makes you a more brave and courageous person. I think it makes you more willing to kind of put yourself out of your comfort zone and you can't really have courage without vulnerability. So I kind of love the idea of like ditching the hangover and choosing a vulnerability hangover because all that really means is that you're kind of living your life more bravely. Um, But oh my gosh, he's amazing to chat with. He's seven years sober. So he has just so much wisdom and so many insights to share. And one of my favorite, takeaways from this chat is just like how much being sober can really connect you back to like your creativity and your inspiration because like his poetry I mean he started writing kind of when he was in the process of trying to get sober but then um it was kind of like a return back to back to his creativity when he got sober and I mean, talk about being able to accomplish a lot by getting sober, releasing three books in seven years. So you're going to love this chat today. I loved having this chat. Um, I won't make you wait any longer. So here it is. Hello. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks so much for being here. And thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. Um, Okay. I'm excited to hear more about your story. So I'm just going to get right into it. Um, Okay. So I'm curious to hear a bit about like your childhood and kind of like the role alcohol played in your childhood. Was it a big part of like, were you around it a lot in your family growing up? Was it something that was talked about a lot in your house? 
Well, my childhood actually was like, oh, geez. My parents never drank at all. Like, I didn't even know what alcohol was for most most of my childhood. Really? Um, yeah, my we struggled quite a bit. Um, my we weren't exactly well off, and so, but we. I was born in Edmonton, and after uh, I was five years old when we moved to BC, and so my dad got a job out here, and um, yeah, we kind of like struggled. Uh, we rented for a little while. I, I don't. I didn't have a bad childhood. I had uh, uh, most of my memories were like pretty awesome. You know, I got. He-Man for Christmas and Transformers for my birthday. <laughs> played a lot of street hockey, uh, played a lot of ice hockey growing up. But yeah, no alcohol really wasn't, it wasn't in our home on a regular basis. Um, you know, I, I don't remember knowing or seeing what anybody, uh, what anybody who was drunk looked like or acted like. It just never was a thing for me. So um, looking back on it now, I can see that my parents were protecting me um or just it just wasn't something they could afford right so even when i had grown up and i was moving out of the house my parents had just started to like make their own wine and um yeah i mean there were parties and stuff and when i was a teenager um i think the first time i ever got drunk was at my ex-girlfriend's bachelor oh no my ex-girlfriend's wedding <laughs> i was invited to her wedding at edmonton and i'd gone back and um we had just dated in the summer i don't even know why i call her my ex-girlfriend <laughs> um yeah and then a bunch of guys went we all went out to the bush because that's what you do in edmonton go to the bush and you drink beer around a fire and so i'd had a wildcat <laughs> i had a wildcat Actually, I had two wildcats, two tall boys. Actually, they were those really big bottles of wildcat. And those were like 9% or something like that. Oh, it's my just God. just that really terrible, disgusting beer. <laughs> anyway, I had two of those, and I was so sick. And uh, I had found out that... I had found out that weekend that I was a sad drunk and not a, a, not a happy oh, drunk. Oh, okay. Yeah. Basically, they had to drag me everywhere. And I was like, I'm a terrible person. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you at that point? Like when you got drunk for the first time? Uh, I was probably 17. Okay. No, and maybe, maybe earlier than that. Uh, maybe 16, 16 or 17. So you have yeah. that like first getting drunk experience where you're just like really sad. And yeah. then how did like your relationship with alcohol continue after that? Was it still something like after that night that you wanted to keep doing? Did that like turn you oh, off of it a little bit yeah. for a while or? No, I mean, it was one of those things where I remember like my parents have a picture of me like looking terrible the next morning at Humpty's. <laughs> um, and I still can't look at a Humpty's, but we don't have them here in BC, but um, I, I have been, in Edmonton, obviously, since then as an adult. And I remember just walking past the Humpties and going, <laughs> like getting this gag reflex, like it was like a reminder. <laughs> um, but my relationship with alcohol didn't really change. I kind of just abused it occasionally whenever I had an opportunity. And that wasn't all the time. And even when I lived on my own and moved out of the house in my early 20s and got a job, I still didn't drink irresponsibly but there would be weekends every once in a while where you know i went off the cuff and i drank too much but no one ever said anything because it was normalized right mm -hmm. i mean i didn't really have a, a problem with alcohol at that point um but i liked it and i drank more than most of my friends um if we would go to a bar or if we would have a party i would have three or four and everybody else would have two right uh, but again i still didn't drink every day so i i didn't have this I didn't have an idea that I was creating a problem for myself at the time. Yeah. Um, and then as uh, it really didn't, alcohol didn't really become a visual problem for me uh, until I was in my early 30s, uh, late 20s, early 30s. And I had gotten a job at finished university. I had gotten a job at an insurance brokerage. Um, I had worked my way up in that insurance brokerage. And I was in the commercial department where you do business insurance. And I had created a winery insurance policy. <laughs> okay. So I created this program and my job was to go to all the wineries in BC and sell this pro 
product to them. And so that's what I did. And I got to know these people. I got to know their product. Um, it was a great way to get, uh, it was never free. Like, I don't even know why I thought it would be free, but it was never free. Um, but I ended up like visit, going into the interior and visiting all these wineries, like mm -hmm. all the time, all the time. I was never home and we were having kids. I remember one time I was on a road trip and I was talking to my wife at the time on the phone and the baby was sick, who is my oldest child now. And um, yeah, I just remember feeling really terrible that I was not home, but then I totally forgot about it because five minutes later I was drinking a bottle of wine with the owner of this winery and that just kind of like took over. And so by the time we had three kids, I was full blown alcoholic drinking mm -hmm. three bottles of wine every day. Wow. And that was like, yeah, 20, 2014 is kind of when everything started to spiral out of control. Yeah. And so what did life look like for you at that point? Mm. Um, it was a mess, but I didn't think it was a mess because um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to face it. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that was, uh, really big at the time for me was like, I had done the winery insurance thing for about seven, eight years. Now at this point, I was progressing into the next level in the insurance brokerage. Um, I was a director of sales. I had more responsibility. There was going to be even more travel, um, all things that, I, I knew we're just taking me down a path where I would be just drinking more. And at that time, my ex-wife had been saying to me that, you know, you should do this online test. I think you're an alcoholic, mm. um, you know, all these things. And I had, I had a few opportunities to take a look at that, but I still didn't see any problem with it. And I always still found a way to drink. And so when the summer of 2014 rolled around, um, I had decided that I would quit for my ex-wife and for my kids. And, but leading up to that, I was, I was drinking steadily every single day, but it wasn't, it wasn't to the point where it was before I actually quit. So it would be like a bottle of wine split between me and another coworker at lunch, but that was like every day. And then right. I'd have a drink in the afternoon then I would come home and I'd have another drink or two while I was making dinner. And then after that, the kids would go to bed and then, and then the real drinking would start. My ex and I would watch TV and then we would have, we would split a bottle of wine, but that wasn't enough. And I'd go and get another one and then we'd split that. And then that wasn't enough. And then, so there was always, it, it was never enough. I was beginning mm -hmm. to feel like it was never enough. So I'd go out and I'd buy like a massive case of alcohol, bring it home. And in a few days it would be gone. And it just never seemed to be enough. And, um, in the moment I never saw the insanity of that. Um, right. and eventually it got worse and worse and worse. And then I would end up in places i never would end up in sober, like strip clubs. I would like, I never waste my money in, in a place like that during, you know, if I was sober, mm -hmm. um, and, but I mean, I was always there when I was drinking with people in Vancouver, right. With, with my job, I, I had to schmooze and I had to do things like that. And, um, you know, I, I never, I was just, it always felt like I had a drink in my hand, no matter what I was doing. And yeah. then in 2014, I had decided, uh, like end of 2013, I got really super drunk and I had no idea how I got home. I know I didn't drive, but I had, um, uh, I had walked into the kitchen and there was something in my pocket. I didn't know what it was, but my ex-wife said that this is enough. Like we thought you were dead. You were off the grid for like eight hours. We you know, where were you? You know, you stink. And I just reached into my pocket and there was a piece of pizza in there. I have no idea how that got there. And I started eating the pizza and I went, you got it. Pits. And then I went and I crashed oh. on the couch. Oh man. Well, it was terrible. Oh, so, <laughs> um, <laughs> That was a Christmas party or something. And I had uh, the next day I looked at my bank account and I was like, oh, my gosh, I have no idea how how uh, I had spent all that money. Mm. Anyway, I thought, OK, the next day, that's it. Uh, I had to go to another Christmas function downtown and I was still hung over from the day before. And I went there and I said I wasn't going to have a drink, but I did. And then I ended up doing it all over again the next day. Uh, but I came home earlier, so my ex-wife had no idea what, you know, that I had 
done it again, but I was just, it was just a shorter trip down memory lane, I guess. Mm -hmm. So 2014 started off with me making a conscious effort to drink less. And that mat lasted maybe a day or two. Yeah. <laughs> and then all the same behavior started again, but I was hiding it. Um, but slowly but surely it, the intensity of the intensity of it all began to pick up. It was mm -hmm. like I had, I was on, I was drinking on borrowed time. You know, I knew that it was going to end soon. So I had to make the best of it because I right. knew in my heart that I was an alcoholic. So, um, 2014 summer rolled around and, um, my ex-wife and I had gone into Vancouver for a, uh, wedding anniversary thing. And it was a total shit show. And, uh, we fought and I smashed some really great Maui Jim sunglasses and we Aww. fought over the dumbest things. Um, and she stopped me from jumping out the window, um, of the hotel. Like I was wow. going to smash the window open and just oh, take a header. Wow. And, um, yeah. So I remember the next day thinking I got to do something about this. Um, and about a week later, I remember, um, maybe I should talk to my uncle. So my, my uncles on my mom's side of the family are all alcoholics and, and, mm. and sober now but one of my uncles had drank himself to death a couple years earlier um so he had been an alcoholic for a long time and a smoker and had um not the greatest health and he had had a massive heart attack and and died so but i never thought that would be me right yeah so i guess the way the 2014 kind of went was like um it was just this mishmash of tries and like talking to people and trying to figure out how to do this without you know, admitting to myself that I had a problem mm -hmm. and it was just like prolonging the inevitable. It always felt like, but, um, October of 2014, um, my ex had sort of had enough of my BS and, um, I had maybe successfully had a few weeks of sobriety in mm -hmm. and I was just kind of white knuckling it. And I was like throwing pity parties all the time. Yeah. And, <laughs> uh, she came home with a typewriter and she said, you know, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going to write about what I'm going through because she was going through her own stuff as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought, oh, I haven't written in a very long time. So before to understand where I came up with my writing name was before I had like locked myself into this white collared schmoozing booze fest of a life. Um I was very creative. I was a musician. I wrote a fantasy novel, like a ah. Lord of the Rings kind of thing. It was 900 pages. I wrote a couple of movies. I I was always writing, always creating, and I enjoyed it. Like I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And then I got into drinking and then I just shifted my hyperfixation into alcohol. Mm -hmm. So I looked at the fun she was having with the typewriter and I thought, oh, maybe I should give that a shot. Yeah. So we would bar, we would share the typewriter and I, and I go, now what? And she was like, well, take a picture of it and post it on Instagram. And I was like, cool, but I don't want people I know to know that I do this. Right. I don't want them to know what I'm struggling with. Um, so I created this separate thing. Cause that's what my ex-wife was doing. She had created a separate name and a separate thing. She didn't, and it was all secret. It was just for her. And I liked that idea. So then I did the same and so I would write and then I would take a picture and then I'd post it on Instagram and slowly, but surely like followings kind of came and we were doing mm. this husband wife thing on Instagram. And, um, eventually we had found this community of writers and in that community of writers, I had met, um, Laura McKeown. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The so, luckiest. That's right. Yeah. Um, so we got to know each other and she was struggling at the same time. She's got a few months ahead of me in sobriety. Mm -hmm. And so she had kind of figured things out and she encouraged me to, you know, try other things. Like, why don't you try AA? And I was like, I don't want to go to a meeting. And she says, well, no one wants to go to a meeting, but why don't you give it a shot? What do you have to lose? And I was like, oh, all right. And so um, I talked to another person on Instagram and uh she had sent me my own big book and so she had written the promises in there and um I never read it <laughs> I just <laughs> put it on the shelf and yeah. I was like that's great um 
So anyway, life was just like about writing about trying to stay sober and failing, write about yeah. it, stay sober, fail, and then try again, fail. And I, most I would get maybe three months in, but I found as, as, as I relapsed, everything became even more intense than they were the year before. Mm. And I remember one night I just, I completely went off the grid again and I was gone and nobody knew where I was and I didn't know how I got home and it was May. And then I got a few, I don't know, that, that whole period of time between May 2015 and July 2015 was a complete blur. Yeah. Um, and then July 29th, 2015, um, I had gone to a meeting maybe in February of 2015 and I hated it. So I never went back. But July 29th, it was a Saturday. It was 11 o'clock in the morning. And I just found myself pouring a glass of wine. And I was like, I am insane. And so I smashed the bottle of wine in the sink. I poured everything we had in the house down the drain. Wow. I smashed every wine glass, every beer glass, every piece of alcoholic paraphernalia in the house. I just threw it in the garbage can. Um, and I remember pouring this $100 bottle of scotch down the drain. And my ex was going, <laughs> and then she was like oh okay he's doing what i want him to do all right, right. <laughs> wow. so yeah anyway and i went to a meeting and that was my that was my last day of drinking wow i find that so fascinating how like it's sometimes it's just the most random moments where our like enough is enough moment kind of hits yep. right like because i'm there sure was there no was rock bottom yeah for me like i'd had rock bottoms before mm -hmm. but i felt like if i keep going like i watched i was watching my kids play on their bikes and playing in the cul-de-sac and i was like oh man i can't imagine not coming home to them um yeah. i gotta i gotta fix this but i had to do it i had to make this chaotic grand gesture to myself to really finalize that this was it mm -hmm. like there's no going back I, I can't come home I can't have booze in the home and so when I first started and I went back to meetings and I made a commitment we had made a, a pact in the family that there would be no alcohol in the house until I felt like I would be okay with it around mm -hmm. um so for like for the first six months um, my ex didn't drink at all uh, we didn't go out. We didn't go anywhere. We just stayed home and did the work. I went to meetings. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of how the first little bit went. Yeah. Do, do you think that for like that, however long it was that you were kind of trying and white knuckling it, do you think at that point you really wanted to get sober? Or was it more so that you were trying to get sober, like for, for your wife, for other yeah. people? Yeah, I was get I was doing it for other people. Yeah. Um, it was yeah, I wasn't doing it for myself. I mean, like you can lie to yourself pretty easily. Like as an, as alcoholics, we're really great actors and liars. So like, uh, you know, I was just putting on the Ritz, so to speak. And yeah, I, I never once thought about what I would be getting out of sobriety. I just always looked at it going, well, I can't have fun anymore. Um, there's nothing to do. I, yeah. you know, I loved going out. I loved going to restaurants. I loved being that guy at the bar that would buy people drinks. Now I find those people so annoying. <laughs> um, and I, every time I just cringe, I was like, oh, I can't believe I was like that trying to yeah. talk up the waitresses or talk to the bartender. Ugh. What a way to live. Anyway, I hated it. And I hated myself. Like, I really didn't like who I was at the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. So so how how did so you have that moment where you're pouring your morning glass of wine and then you smash everything and it kind of like clicks for you that you actually want to make this change. How yeah. was like early sobriety for you? Um, I think like like for everybody, there was a pink cloud. Um, yeah. You know, I hopped on that unicorn and wrote it as long as I could. And, um, it was really great. The first year I was flying high. It was, uh, you know, there were few, very few challenges in my early sobriety. Um, and, um, I had, I was going to meetings and I had a good group of people and I looked forward to everything that I was doing in sobriety. And, um, I, my writing changed. I was still posting every day. I was writing, um, finishing up, um, I had started around that time writing my first book, which was My Sober Little Moon, mm -hmm. and I self-published it in 2016, and then I republished it in 2018. And um, so I was still writing, and I was doing all those things, and so I had a lot of distractions, and I was, and I uh, felt stronger than ever, and I was, I had a really great sponsor. So yeah, um, 
I didn't, I, I didn't ever feel like uh, I was at danger for, for relapsing because uh, things were just so fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then the first year ended and the second year started. And that's when, that's when like, I, I realized that like, holy shit, this is, uh, this is hard work. Like really? all of a sudden it was like, everybody says, oh yeah, enter your second year. And you'd be like, um, life changes. Like suddenly you peel your eyeballs back and you're like, oh wow, this is, this is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody kind of takes a step back in your life and it lets you like figure things out. And so that year two and year three was just me just sort of figuring out life. And I hated my job at the time. Mm. Um, and I just, uh, I wasn't getting a lot of respect at work. I'd changed jobs. I felt like I couldn't stay at my old job and be the wine guy, um, known as the wine guy. I, I had to change it up. So I just blew up my career and I uh, went somewhere else and I was making half the money. And so I was like, well, now I don't have wine stress, but now I have money stress. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. And I went through all of that without, you know, thinking like drinking would solve it. So uh, I was proud of looking back. I'm very proud of the fact that I went through all of that without feeling like I needed to have a drink. I mean, yeah. obviously you think about it, but um, yeah, year two and year three were really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but during that time, I had written two more books and I had received a publishing offer from Macmillan in New York through one of their publishing houses. And so we did uh, You Only Love Me When I'm Suffering, which is a collection of poems that I had written when I was in my pity party days, like Mm. in those early days of sobriety, thinking like, you know, and I was thinking about like the people I hurt and um, how I was hurt and, you know, things like that. And so it was a processing kind of a book. And then we wrote Encyclopedia of a Broken Heart in early 2019. And I had no idea what that book was about. I just wrote it. And subconsciously, I just wrote what I was feeling. And I knew there was something locked behind in my early sobriety and before I got sober that I had to process. And that was, you know, the fact that I believed that my my marriage had run its course. Mm. And so when I got my my book sample in uh, late summer, my ex and I had decided to part ways. It was very amicable. Um, I basically had said to her, I I think I'm done here. <laughs> mm. And um, she had said, yeah, me too. And so we kind of figured out how to do that in, in the most amicable way possible. And so people always ask, well, you know, why didn't you cry? And, you know, you know, why aren't you mourning the death of your marriage? And um, I don't know, I just point them towards the writing that that third book. I was like, well, I kind of processed it already. Right. You know, so it gave me like sobriety gave me the ability to so almost like i don't know um yeah work through something in, in a way that uh could limit the amount of damage a resentment could do if, you know for the future of that relationship so when my ex and i decided to part ways we cleared the air everything was on the table and um then we apologized to each other for it and then right. that way we could co-parent as friends and leave that part of our lives behind Mm-hmm. And how, how did like other relationships kind of shift in your sobriety? Like were the, were the people around you supportive of it? Yeah. I, I think like, I remember um, like the, my parents and my brother and sister-in-law were very, very supportive. Like if there was a family event or Christmas or whatever, everybody was happy to put the booze away. Um, so like in those early days in that first year, there were a lot of people making accommodations for me. Um, but then I noticed as time went along, they kept making the same accommodations. And then I was like, it's okay. Like, mm. this is my responsibility. It's not your responsibility. Yeah. You can, you just go do you right. If it's too much for me, I'll excuse myself, but it, you don't have to continue to feel like you're putting me in harm's way. It's not your job. It's my job. Right. right? And so that was difficult to communicate and have them understand Right. You can say those things, but not everybody understands truly. They just they'll they they like to make some people that I knew like to be the martyr. Like, mm. you know, like they just wanted to take that on and and like make it a bigger deal than it was. It's just like, no, you have a party drink. I don't give a crap. And none of none of the people that I really knew in my life were big drinkers. So really? it boggled my mind even more. So well, we didn't invite you because we're gonna be drinking. And it's like, well, now I don't get invited to anything. So I'm like, and then nobody wants to come over and bring their booze along. It's like, really, that's, that's not, 
You know, you can tell people all these things, but you know, they feel like they don't, they don't trust you yet. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's nothing that I can deal with. Right. I, I, I can't control how they feel. All I can do is tell them the truth and let them do with it as they will. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I found that that a struggle. Some of my friendships did, did suffer. I didn't lose any friends, but we definitely don't hang out as often as we, we used to. And I would ask them that it's like, like, what's going on? Like, I, I haven't been camping with you guys in years. Um, you know, New Year's parties, I always had to find out about the New Year's parties, like a couple of days before they happened. It would be rare if I got an invite like a few weeks before, like everybody else did. And but everybody's like trying to protect me. And it's like, nobody's trusting the fact that I got this right. right. Like even now, it's been seven years, you know, I've got this, like, yeah. there's nothing you can do. You know, I've been through hell and back since then with lots of different things with my kids you know, divorce, whatever, like, I'm good. I can stand it. If you guys want to drink, whatever you want to drink at your party, I don't care. It doesn't bother me, you know? So, but people don't, people don't listen um, because they can't relate to you anymore. And that's what some of my friends said is that we don't know how to relate to you anymore. So I was like, well, there's lots of things that you can do. You can go to an Al-Anon meeting. You can read this book. You can listen to me and you can actually ask, ask questions. You can ask me questions. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the one thing that I didn't get a lot from the people that were in my life. There was a lot of sympathy. There was a lot of, you know, um, empathy, but not a lot of people ask questions. And yeah. um, I, I found that that was like the hardest thing was to like be okay with just stepping back because like, I felt like some people were like, expecting me to like, grab them and hold on even tighter but that's not what we do in sobriety right we have to we can only control ourselves Mm -hmm. so if somebody wants to like pardon themselves from the friendship for a while go ahead do it you know it's not like you're not invaluable to me anymore or unvaluable like you're still like a close person for me but if you want to take a step back because you have to process it go for it i don't care that's not my business my business is what's right in front of me and in my own life. So, you know, it really pushed me actually to like progress in my sobriety a lot further. So in a way I'm thankful for it because I became self-reliant and I stopped being codependent on people. Mm. So I was happy to be alone, but now that I've got seven years of sobriety, it's like, yeah, it would be nice to be invited to a few more things. That's for sure. Um, and, uh, but anyway, I've gone out there and I've created a new group of friends and I've gotten closer and closer to some of the guys in my AA meeting, which is fantastic. Um, and, uh, that's really what, what kind of what secured, uh, things for me is like creating that type of community that I could fall back on because my other community in the early days, I kind of felt abandoned to a certain degree, Mm. but looking back on it, I'm okay with that. Um, and I really, you know, now I don't take it personally. Back then I did, but now I don't. Like I don't want to take anything personally. Like if somebody feels like they wronged me, then they can deal with that themselves. Like mm-hmm. I, you don't have to apologize to me. Because <laughs> yeah. I've moved on over everything. I am untouchable. <laughs> I find it like so interesting though. People have very funny reactions to other people getting sober. And I think it's just always a statement about usually that person's relationship with alcohol, but even like some people just aren't comfortable. I've had the same thing where like some people in my life, like didn't really ask that much about it. Um, So it is, it is interesting. And I think it's also like such a testament to how solid you are in your sobriety that you were able to go through like a divorce, go through like friendships changing, go through lots of hard times in seven years where. I feel like lots of people will, would use those kinds of things as their excuse to feel justified, like yeah. to, to drink again. So then to just like go through huge life things like that and stay in it really just shows that like, you're not, you're not letting yourself off the hook with it. Yeah. And I, I think too, um, I had a solid foundation in AA and mm. um, the big book and I had a good relationship with my higher power and that's changed a lot too, over the years. Mm. Um but yeah, I kind of the you know I I can't take I can't I can't take it for granted. I only ever have the day, and um, you know taking things one day at a time. And as cheesy as it as the cliche is, it's really helped me for sure. Yeah, yeah. Something I'm curious about because I come from 
Um, like both my parents are alcoholics. My mom mm-hmm. has been sober for my whole life. My dad relapsed when I was a kid and was like in and out of rehab a lot. So, but for me, um, and he is, he's sober now, by the way, but for me, alcohol was such a topic of conversation in my house for that reason. So I'm curious, like if, if you're willing to speak to it about, um, how much of a conversation you've had with your kids about, about your, alcoholism. Oh yeah. Yeah. My, my kids know I'm an alcoholic. They know I go to meetings. Uh, they know that there's never going to be any booze in our house ever. And so that makes it difficult to date, (laughs) (laughs) but that's a boundary I need to stick by. Not because I feel like I'm going to relapse if booze is in my house, Mm -hmm. but I feel like it's uh, my kids need to grow up in a home without alcohol. Um, primarily because I can see in my kids, some of the same behaviors I had when I was a kid. And if I don't help correct or steer them on a different path, they may end up making the same choices that I did later on in life that brought me to that point. And everybody has their journey. And I know that some people end up there anyway, but I have to give my kids the best version of me. And that's a me without having anything that could kill me in my home. Yeah. Right. And I think like, I grew up with just like a single mom and she was sober and I didn't, I took it for granted at the time because it was all I knew, but now as an adult, I'm so grateful for that because I've like had people, I, I, I dated a guy who had like much younger siblings and I went over to his house once and both of his parents were wasted. And I remember thinking to myself, like, how do, how do his, how do his little siblings feel safe with like two parents who are super drunk and like, what if there's an emergency and they couldn't drive them to the hospital? Like that was something I'd never thought about before. Um, that really like, as I've gotten older, I've realized like, it's pretty rare that I grew up without ever seeing my mom drinking or without ever having alcohol in the house. And like, I'm super glad about it. Yeah. My parents were never like that. Like growing up, my, my parents, like my, as I became like, you know, in my teen years, yeah, they'd have a glass of wine here and there, but really I, I never saw my parents drunk like ever, mm-hmm. never, ever. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So, okay. So now seven years sober, what's yep. like, what's life and sobriety like for you at this point now? Well, um, you know, I've, I've achieved a lot. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that I have three published books out there. It's amazing. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty neat. Um, you know, I've got a oh, look at you. Aw. Fantastic. Yeah, and they're beautiful books. And I'm I'm I want to write another one, but I have all these opportunities that I never would have had if I kept drinking. I'm pretty sure I would have been dead by now, but um or in jail. Like when I was drinking, nothing ever bad happened. And that was sort of my my measurement of like how I could handle my liquor was, right. was you know, those things happening or not. But yeah, I mean, I did crash a car. Um, I got so wasted one time. I just wandered around the desert, how I never died from a rattlesnake bike bite in uh, a Soyuz. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, today I own my own business, my own insurance brokerage. Um, it gave me the ability to, um, you know, make the right decisions at the right times. Um, and, uh, yeah. And I live in a beautiful place. Um, my kids love spending time with me. I'm always present and aware of what's going on in their lives. And, um, you know, my oldest has had some health challenges and I've been able to be there for them and for my other kids. Um, my son has, uh, high, high functioning autism. And so like, there's, you know, I always feel like I'm on call. Like I don't get to check out. Right. You know, I don't get to like, you know, (laughs) I don't get to get drunk. Like it's just not allowed. Um, and I don't want to, right. And that's the beauty of it. I don't get to, but I don't want to. And so it's, it's nice to be fully present and accounted for every single day. And my kids are you know, living their best lives. And I have an excellent relationship with my ex-wife and her husband and, you know, and the business is, yeah, you know, has grown beyond my wildest dreams. We just moved into some office space, um, you know, and so all of these things sobriety is showing me is like, you know, you will reap the reward 
of working on yourself. And I think people forget that when they first start is that there will be a different version of themselves along the line that will look back and go, holy crap, we just did something amazing. And I can't wait for the next seven years, right? What's that going to look like? So, um, you know, all I can say is like sobriety today, um, you know, it just, it, it does get better. And, and I know people in early sobriety must be, get sick and tired of hearing that because, you know, the early days are really tough. Yeah. But, but I think it's comforting underst- to hear. Yeah. <laughs> like I was okay well, hearing yeah. it. <laughs> Once, if you understand post-acute withdrawal syndromes, you understand that the brain is rewiring. You don't have to listen to any of those urges to go out and drink because this is just mm-hmm. a chemical thing happening in your brain on a yeah. molecular level, right? This is just pathways repairing itself and it's going to suck. And it's going to be really tempting to just give in to what the brain knew as a crutch for such a long time. But there are other ways to replace that, right? And that's why I started writing. And that's kind of how I I worked through the post-acute withdrawal syndrome is just by writing. And, um, you know, out of that, whatever you end up doing, amazing things like some people work out, some people do a podcast, some people uh, sync their teeth into other hobbies that they have and like everything everything comes i don't know like the bill always comes due if but only if you continue to drink you know then if you stop drinking then you can pay that debt back by staying sober Mm, so good what and you just kind of did give really good advice but like if you were going to talk to someone who was like brand new in sobriety are there any like words of like advice or any specific tools that you think that really helped oh, yeah. you that you would want to share with them buckle up <laughs> <laughs> so <them> uh, <laughs> one piece of advice that i got that i didn't have to use when i first got sober because i was married but um one that i've given to people time and time again is like because through my writing people reach out and they go like i'm this mm. that and the other thing and i've got problem with alcohol and I know it and I don't know what to do. And so, you know, it's, it's flattering that people come and ask me for advice. And one thing I always say is like, number one, you know, get to a recovery meeting. It doesn't mean that you have to put your, you know, if you don't feel like you have to hang your hat there, if it doesn't work for you, at least it introduces you to other people that are going through the same thing as you. Yeah. So community is huge. And that doesn't matter how you form that sober community, but mine started on Instagram uh, by meeting Laura and a few other people. Um, and then I went to Laura's meetings. Those were my meetings. Oh, I, I joined the luckiest club. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And she is, she was such a strong influence for me, mm. uh, in those early days. And she's just an amazing friend. And, um, but yeah, like find a community is number yeah. one, number two, stay out of new relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anything that could distract you from staying sober, you know, by replacing alcohol with a person that that's not going to help because then yeah. you become even you become codependent on somebody else instead of alcohol. Um, that will ruin the relationship and it, it never lasts. And um, and the third thing I would say is like if you have um, if you have a community is find someone there that you know it's good to have a group of people, but then have one specific person like the sponsor system works really well, I find for some people and it worked really well for me. Uh, other, you know, just having one person that you can go to and just talk things through and vent to, and is okay with that. Um, and, uh, you know, if you have that, you kind of create this little program for living, you know, you have boundaries, you have people and you have a best friend, so to speak, you know, and those three things can coexist all together and you have some kind of a program. But I mean, if, if you're not good at those kinds of things, doing it yourself, then like getting to a meeting or trying AA or trying any other type of recovery meeting, luckiest, whatever it might be, those are things that can just give you footing, right? You need a yep. new foundation. You need a different crutch than alcohol. And it's okay to admit that you need that. Yeah. I know. I, I, I think like it's so necessary to have some sort of community around you. Um, for Absolutely. sure. I mean, just like, I think it's Gabor Mate. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but the opposite of addiction is connection, right? Mm-hmm. That's what he said. Mm-hmm. And um, I've always known that to be true. But when I heard it, I was like, yes, that is that is the absolute truth. So the opposite of addiction is connecting yourself to other people. And 
those have to be people that understand what it is that you're going through and going to my old friends or like, um, I don't, I don't go to this church anymore, but like uh, being in a church and those things, it's okay. If you do go to church, it's okay for you to realize that that's not where your answer is. If you're an addict, it's -hmm. not there. That's not their specialty. They have no medical knowledge. They have no spiritual, spiritual knowledge in terms of how to get you out of your addiction because they're not going through the same thing as you. They're going to give you advice. They're going to tell you things that may work for you in other parts of your life. But when it comes to quitting alcohol or drugs, that's not where you're going to find that help. You know, prayer alone isn't going to work. You have to add prayer to everything else that you're doing. And so I, you know, you, you, you just can't, you can't be lazy about it. Right. You you have to seek out more. um, I'm not going to say complicated, but you know, the, the fact is, is that you need a few things going on for you to keep you going. Right? It's so the community true. is huge. Yeah. Yeah. Because if, if you rely on church and they let you down, for example, um, or they're not there, you could relapse. If you rely on one person and that person's not there, you could relapse. If you rely on yourself solely and, and that's it, and it's really early sobriety and you have no willpower, you're going to relapse. So yeah, it's got to be a multitude of things going on at once. You have to completely change the way that you did things before. So, you know, many of us like myself, you know, you're shut in, you're drinking at home all alone, all the time, all by yourself. You have to change that. Yeah. And and look, like you created this, such this like full, awesome new life for yourself in your seven yeah. years of sobriety. It's amazing. Yeah. And it can happen for everybody and anybody like you know, there are a lot of pages out there that focus on uh, that, that showcase people whose lives have changed. It's like that happens for every single person, right? Mm-hmm. Every single person that gets into sobriety. And, you know, if, if you're saying, no, it's not, it's terrible. It's awful. Then you have to look inside and go, what, what uh, haven't I done yet? You yeah. know, why am I still in the pity party mode? And it's, you know, my, my grandfather was an alcoholic and he got sober, but he stopped going to meetings at some time. And my uncles had always said that she, he was a dry drunk, right? He, yeah. You know, I don't remember my grandfather smiling very much before he passed on, Aww. but he died sober. But wow. yeah, he, he wasn't happy, but he was also a loner. He didn't have a community. Right. And so, you know, being a dry drunk is almost worse than being a wet drunk. It really is. You have to be like willing to see it as a good thing. Because anyone can choose to just feel bad for themselves about it and see all the ways that yes. they're like missing out by getting drunk or by by not being able to get drunk. And it really like I've I had to remind myself of that a lot, even in like my first year of like, OK, this isn't something I'm missing out on. This is like a decision I'm making because yeah. it's like what's best. Well, I find too like connections that I made when I was drinking were shallow AF. Right. None of those people stuck around and why would I expect them to, right? It's like the, the connections I've made sober. I mean, I have friends that I made when I first like Laura, like other people that I met on Instagram, like I'm still friends with a good number of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, but anybody that I had met and I started drinking wine with when I was out there, nope. Like I ran into someone the other day and, um, said, let's go for lunch. And I said, yeah, let's do that. So we arranged a lunch and showed up and he had a bottle of wine on the table and two wine glasses. He was ready to go. Right. Uh, but he knew the old me. And so, uh, wow. you know, I had to tell him and I did, I, and I was like, sorry, but I don't drink anymore. And he's like, what? And I was like, yeah. Um, I, I know I'm one of these guys that's not shy about sharing my story. So I told yeah. him I was an alcoholic and I had quit seven years ago. And, um, and, uh, you know, he had just kept on going and you could see it in his face. Right. So hopefully one of these days he reaches out and, yeah. but you know, he, he drank half that bottle on his own and I would have, I would have drank the other bottle, half the bottle. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it was a Monday. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I, I think, uh, I just really enjoy not being chained to that part of society that tells you, you have to drink every time you go out and you do something fun. You know, it's not, that's not fun. Yeah. A hundred percent. It, it really is true that like, that was my entire definition of fun and in sobriety. It's like, oh, when you're drinking, that's like the only, that's like the only thing you're doing really. Yeah. 
that's like the main event of everything you're doing. And now it's like, oh, or you can actually just like live your life and enjoy what you're doing rather than using it as a means to drink. That's right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is so great. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're very welcome. I really appreciate you reaching out and, um, and setting this up. It's, I love telling my story. Um, yeah, I I never hesitate to, to say yes. Yeah. Well, I loved hearing it and I think it's, it's so inspiring for so many people. Um, okay. So tell us where we can find you. So at the underscore poetry bandit, can I ask real quick before we wrap up how that name, where that name came from, you kind of alluded to it that you wanted a different name, but yeah, I, um, I started using it because I felt like I was stealing my love of language back from my addiction. So I I went through university I have an English literature BA. Um, I've written books and I've written movies and I've, you know, I've written music and poems and all this kind of great stuff. And when I started drinking more and more, all of my creativity went away. So I kind of felt like I was stealing my love of language and poetry back from my addiction. And that's kind of where I came up with the name. I love that so much. Okay. So at the underscore poetry bandit on Instagram, and then your three books. So my sober little moon encyclopedia of a broken heart. And you only love me when I'm suffering. Where can people get them? Uh, well, Amazon's the cheapest place, <laughs> obviously, but if you don't want to support Amazon, you can support your local bookstores. If they don't have them, you can typically order them in. Um, my sober little moon is self-published. So I sell signed copies on my Etsy. Um, so you just search poetry bandit on Etsy and, and you'll, my shop should come up. Um, but they're all available on Amazon. And if you pop into Indigo in Canada or Barnes and Noble in the States, um, my published books should be there as well. Amazing. Thank you yeah. so much for coming on. Thanks, Madeline. I really appreciate you inviting me. Thank you so, so much for listening. If you aren't already, make sure you follow John on Instagram, pick up your copy of his books. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, then feel free to share it on social media or share it with a friend. And as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow me on Instagram at happiest sober and happiest sober podcast. I'll chat with you next week. Remember that life is happiest when you're sober. Bye. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.